0: Saints of our Lord and welcome to thy strong word we open up our Bibles this next hour to study the inspired and true Word of God and to see the Word made flesh our Lord Jesus Christ who is our light and our salvation the light shines on us today as we start a new book Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus Paul begins his letter with a prayer a blessed prayer not surprising because Paul had served this congregation for approximately three years and loved this Ephesian congregation. And what do you do when you love somebody? You prayer, a prayer of blessing. And he points us to so many gems, lots of grace and lots of mercy and lots of Jesus. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finner, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we have with us the special honor to have with us Dr. Thomas Winger, President of Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, and also the author of the Concordia Commentary on Ephesians. Dr. Winger, welcome to Thy Strong Word.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you and to meet you for the first time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Not face-to-face, but it's good to hear your voice. (laughs) Well, Dr. Winger, I'm excited because you are technically my first international guest. What do you think of that?
1: Well, it's amazing we can do it with the border closed, but uh, (laughs) it's good to talk to you over the telephone at least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For our listeners, it might be a little confusing. Um, Dr. Winger, we have have new listeners all the time. That's one of the things that I've found being on this program for a month and a half is that we have people who are first time listeners have been listening for a year you were on this uh, program about three years ago okay. um and it might be a little bit confusing to people because they they might know of our seminaries in america st louis and fort wayne in the lutheran church missouri synod but then they're like wait a second there's another seminary in canada what's up with these canadian lutherans can you uh, tell us a little bit about maybe lutheran church canada and the seminary in uh, saint Catharines? yeah i'd be glad to uh the the three districts
1: of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that were in Canada formed an independent church in 1989 uh so we are really we come out of the Missouri Synod and we are in full fellowship with the Missouri Synod but we're simply self-governing and it works that, it works better that way when you're in a separate country and already at that time Um, The Missouri Synod had founded two seminaries in Canada. So uh, our seminary in St. Catharines was founded in 1976, and then another one in Edmonton in the West in 1984. Uh, So both seminaries were actually Missouri Synod seminaries. So uh, Missouri Synod people don't always realize that at one time there were four Missouri Synod seminaries. Uh, But when the Canadian Church uh, had its founding convention, the Missouri Synod uh, graciously donated the seminaries to the new uh, partner church. Um, Our seminary in St. Catharines has uh, continued to serve a a significant number of American students because we're only 15 minutes drive from the border, as I said, if it were only open. Uh, We often have students who actually live in western New York and commute to us. Uh, on this side, and when they are finished with their studies, they may choose to go back to the States or they may choose to stay in Canada. Um, But the majority of our students are Canadian students uh, uh, who are really trying to learn how to be a pastor in in this country where the situation is a little bit different than in the U.S. Uh, We also have quite a large number of international students. Uh, from Europe and Asia. Right now, we have a student from uh, mainland China, from India, uh, from Ghana, and so on. Over the years, we've had quite a, uh, a sort of a missionary aspect to our, our seminary's work. Um, and one, uh, maybe t- just to point out the size, um, one of the big differences between Canadian Lutheranism and the U.S. is simply how much smaller we are, even mm. considering that the country is, has a smaller population. Uh, Lutheranism is very. Uh, uh, is quite unknown in Canada. Our churches are very small. And here at St. Catharines, then, correspondingly, we have usually about 20 to 25 students. So we're not on the scale of Fort Wayne and St. Louis. Mm. Um, But it it makes for a very intimate place to study. And our students often say that they prefer the the smaller environment and and the attention they get from their faculty and fellow students here.
0: Well, what a, what a blessing. I mean, that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed um, to be on KFUO in general is that we're able to hear from people around the world. And although, like you said, it's 15 minutes away from the U.S. border, it can be almost a world apart right now because the – the borders are closed, and uh, how do we reach people in the same way? We have that situation here in Minnesota North, where I'm located, Minnesota North District, where we have a pastor, Pastor Jacob Quast, who is a pastor in Canada and America, Fort Francis, and uh, and also International Falls. If anybody knows International Falls, it's known as the icebox of America, <laughs> one of the coldest places in America. But he simply has cannot go across the border. We um, see wasn't last time I talked to him. So it yeah, shows you yeah. the complexities. And yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I'm just going to say that I know Pastor Cost and 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 that situation. Uh, he may be the only person who serves uh, congregations in both synods at the same time. Although there are Missouri Synod congregations in Canada from the English District and the SELC.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it is is a very complex time. Very thankful because, again, we have the same gospel, the same confession of faith, and we join together with our Lord's strength. So, thank you for that that background. Hopefully, that's very helpful to everybody as we listen. But today we are here to be in the Word of God. And as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, you have a lot of uh, gems that you are going to bring to us. And also, Dr. Winger, you have a very big book on Ephesians. Can you tell us how long it took you to write this commentary?
1: <laughs> yeah, Um <laughs> Well, it's kind of like when people ask you how long it took to write your sermon for Sunday, and my usual answer is 25, 25 years, you know, because everything we do is, a, is an accumulation of what we've done before. Um, I started working on it back in 1998 or so, uh, and I what I did was I taught Ephesians every year to my students. I was at Westfield House in Cambridge, England teaching, and we just did Ephesians every year. I never got very much writing done until finally in 2010 I had a sabbatical. So uh, it's, it's over many years, but the concentrated mm-hmm. time was, was in that sabbatical year in, in 2010, and then Wonderful. it was published in 2015.
0: 2015. Well, thanks be to God for that work. And as you write in there, to Him be all the glory. Uh, as we look at our time today, um, can you ask our Lord's blessing and prayer as we look at Ephesians, Pastor? I will do that. Let us pray.
1: Blessed be you, O Lord our God, for the work that you have done for us so that we might receive the many gifts of creation and redemption and sanctification we thank you especially for our lord jesus christ into whose holy name we've been baptized and for the protection that he brings us against all spiritual uh, foes and all evil in this world we pray that our faith might be strengthened through the word of your apostle paul that we might be able to confess you uh, in worship and also in the world and that we might be preserved in the true faith through the troubles of this life, into the great rest of eternity towards which we are heading by your grace. All this we pray through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord.
0: Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners today, if you have any questions for us in Ephesians chapter 1, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Um, I would encourage our listeners, open up your Bibles, be ready to dig deep as Pastor Dr. Winger brings us the basic, um, and this is what I want to ask you to do, uh, Dr. Winger, is there's a lot of things that go into the background of this. And so can you give us some background, contextual information to start us off on the right foot?
1: I certainly can. Um, And I don't want to get bogged down in in too many technical things, but um, a lot of people in in the past who've looked at Ephesians have treated it as a very general kind of letter, like like Romans, um, Mm. and haven't connected it to anything going on in the life of the church that it was written to. And so in my commentary, I tried to approach that a little differently and to say, you know, I I think we'll understand this letter better if we know something about what was going on in Ephesus or in those churches in uh, Western Turkey, as it is today, or Asia Minor, as it was called classically, and see if we can understand Paul's letter and why he wrote what he wrote uh, against that background Uh, So when I do Bible studies or teach courses on Ephesians, what I usually ask people to do is to read Acts 18 through 20 or 21 ahead of time um, so that you can see what was going on in that church. Uh, And Ephesians is, is unique in some ways. You mentioned it in your introduction in that Paul actually spent more time in Ephesus than in any other place in his Uh, missionary uh, career and I would venture to say that it's the place where he had more of a pastoral relationship with the people than anywhere else, maybe with the Hmm. exception of Corinthians uh, where, where Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth and so I think that changes the way you view the letter if you see this as the letter written by a pastor to people that he knew very well as opposed, again, to something like Romans, where he hadn't even met the people that he was writing to. So it's going to be very general. Um, And so, you know, if you look through Acts 18 uh, and 19, uh, you find, uh, in fact, Luke uh, spends more time treating this part of Paul's career as well, because it is such a a lengthy time. Uh, Mm. You find that there's quite a few things going on, not just, I wouldn't say in that congregation as such, but in that town, in that part of the world. Um, Ephesus was a major center, uh, 100,000, 200,000 people, depending on on, uh, who you listen to. It had major uh, temples, particularly the Temple of Um, Artemis, as the the Greeks called her, or just the Lady of Ephesus, who was a high-ranking goddess in the the Greek system, Um, and it's the kind of place that Paul likes to settle in to do his missionary work, because it was a crossroads. So there were a lot of people coming and going, Um, he could sit in the Agora, the marketplace, and do his uh, leatherworking trade, and talk to people uh, about the uh, the mission that he was on. Uh, there was also a major Jewish presence, so he could go into the synagogue there, which was always his first port of call, and say, "The Christ you've been waiting for uh, is Jesus of Nazareth." Um, so, what we find in Acts eighteen is that at the very end of Paul's second missionary journey, as he's heading back to Israel, he stops in Ephesus and begins to debate with the Jews about the Messiah. But he, he he can't stay, and so he tells them at the end of Acts 18 that he will return. And mm. Luke's account very quickly shows Paul returning um, as soon as he sets out again on his um, third missionary journey. Uh, he goes to Ephesus and begins. Um, his his lengthy ministry there. When Paul so, gets, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, this is a very helpful, when you get into this, I want to say this, it popped in my mind that Paul did not mind getting messy with people. <laughs> that, yeah. that he's one who liked to hang out in Corinth, that he liked to hang out in Ephesus, two places that were definitely not neat and clean, they all weren't Germans in the town that you could speak the language and not worry about people not understanding the lingo, is that he was willing to get messy with people, which you do see in this book, is that he is being very clear about what he's trying to say. And this is very helpful as you say this, Dr. Wenger, because this clarity one shows that he loved the people whom he's writing to but also that he had to be very clear in order to make sure the gospel is being heard so that's one of my encouragement for the listeners is to realize Paul understood messiness and that's why it applies to us because we're a mess so I want you to continue but I just wanted to add that because that is very profound thank you for that
1: yes and and what you're getting at too there um, Uh, It reminds me to say that there's always two target audiences when when Paul does his mission work he's always going to the Jew first and then also to the Greek as he puts it in the beginning of Romans Um, so on the one hand yes he's going in and talking to the Germans and saying are you Lutheran well let me serve you (laughs) in in that sense (laughs) he's going and he's finding the Jews he's saying I'm a Jew as well we share these scriptures let me tell you about the Messiah that you've been waiting for but Um, Usually what happens is, is that the majority of the Jews don't accept the message. Some of them do. They always do. Um, but uh, Paul turns very quickly to the to the Gentile pagan audience, and that's a that's just as tough a nut to crack, just in different ways. And yes, he just mm-hmm. he sits there. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty uh, to to talk to working class people. He doesn't stand aloof like a like a Bible scholar who's not willing to talk to them. Um, he earns their trust, and he leads them away from paganism in, into the message of Christ. Uh, and we see that happening, particularly in Chapter 19 of Acts, um, where, pardon me a second here, something's ringing in the background, um, <laughs> where in, in Chapter 19, he comes into interaction with magicians and with pagans and uh, false teachers. Um, and uh, that's why we need to know something about um The religious situation of Ephesus where you have uh, this major goddess, um, Artemis of Ephesus, who is in control of a whole hierarchy of uh, minor gods in their system. And the message of Jesus Christ is confronting them. And we see in Acts 19 that you have magicians who are uh, burning their magic books because they've discovered that Jesus Christ has more power and authority than, than all of these gods that they were serving. Uh, and then eventually in Acts 19, Paul uh, uh ends up uh in a riot in the in the theater because the uh, uh the people making the little statues of Artemis are so upset that they're losing business because all of the uh, all of the idolaters are no longer uh buying their their trinkets. Um I've actually got one of those. I was in Ephesus many years ago and and there are still uh, little marketplaces where you can go in and I bought uh I am kind of embarrassed to say it, but I bought one of these little statues of Artemis so that I can show it when I'm when I'm I'm talking about uh, Ephesians, <laughs> um, and you know one of the the the, the, uh, the cool things about understanding that background then is when you get into the book of, Ephes- of Ephesians and you read in chapter six about the armor of God. Uh, you start to realize why Paul is talking about the fact that our battle is against powers and principalities and dominions and not against flesh and blood. Because right there in Ephesus, he, people were constantly being confronted by the demonic, by magic, by uh, gods and goddesses. And, and so that, that's a, a major uh, uh, theme, a, 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 a piece of background to the letter that needs to be understood.
0: So there's a battleground going on here that 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 does explain Ephesians 6 so well, but also it, it explains chapter 1 where he talks about identity. This is who you are, adopted as sons. So that I mean that, that, that's a thread that goes through the whole thing too, is he's emphasizing their identity and God's work in their lives. Uh, that's another profound thing that I'm hearing you say as well.
1: Yeah, and that relates to the other piece of background from, from Acts that I wanted to highlight uh, and and that was uh, the uh, well we 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 mentioned already the fact that there are both Jews and Gentiles in the church there because Paul at first uh, interacted with the Jews uh, some of them believed in Christ some of them didn't and then he turns to the Gentile world uh, but also that uh, this fellow Apollos had been there before Paul and had uh, uh, brought a number of people to faith in Christ, but that he was unfortunately guilty of some uh, a misunderstanding of holy baptism. And so when Paul arrives, he finds a group of people who've received uh, some sort of baptism, but Paul is puzzled because the people don't understand who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, and... So Paul has to begin a process of catechesis to teach them that the baptism that that is received through water in the name of Jesus Christ is a baptism which delivers the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to unite them with one another and to battle against these false powers. Uh, and to me, that also helps us to understand why Ephesians has such a strong emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, and indeed on baptism itself as a unifying force in
0: the church. Wow, that that is wonderful background. Now, if we can move forward a little bit, where is Paul writing to them from? Where was he at when he writes this?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for raising that, because in three places at least in the letter. Um, Paul makes reference to the fact that he's in prison. Uh, and uh, people have debated as to which imprisonment this is. I don't think it matters all that much. Um, <clears throat> the the ancient church thought that Paul was in Rome in prison, uh, so the end of the book of Acts. Uh, I tend to think it was a little earlier, that is, when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, which was Mm. the place where he was in prison before he uh, was taken to Rome. He was in prison in Caesarea for two years. Um, And one of the reasons why I think that that's where he wrote this letter is because while he's there, um, the background uh, to his imprisonment is still very fresh in his mind. And when you read in Acts uh, 20 and 21, you discover that the main reason why Paul is imprisoned is because he uh, has been preaching that the uh, the temple and the Jewish law is no longer the center of the faith life of the people of God, but rather is replaced by Jesus Christ. And the Jews mm-hmm. take that up as an accusation against Paul, and he gets arrested. Uh, and in, in Ephesians 3, verse 13... Uh, Paul hints at the fact, I think, that the Ephesians feel some sense of guilt that Paul got arrested for preaching the gospel to people like them. Uh, And uh, I think, again, that that's quite important in understanding the letter, that Paul is trying to help the Ephesian congregation to understand why he got arrested, that he was arrested uh, not because of them as such, but because Jesus had a plan for him. And Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not a prisoner of the the Caesareans or a prisoner of the governor or a prisoner of the Romans. Uh, And we could perhaps talk a little bit more about what that means for his proclamation of the gospel.
0: Oh absolutely. This is all and a reminder to our listeners too, this is important stuff because when you read Ephesians that there's a lot of background whenever you or I or Dr. Winger or anybody writes something, we all have a history. We all have something that builds this up. And also when you look at all of Scripture, that there's a connection there clearly that points us to Jesus. But also there's some history here, and God has given the gems of us to be able to see when he writes this, some of the background. So my encouragement to listeners is Acts 18 through 20 is what will really open up the floodgates to understand the context of this. And then also, if you or I were to be in prison and write something— we would write it differently than if i'm next to my fire in the middle of winter in canada or northern minnesota you would write a letter differently and to see the gospel in a different way as well so this is very helpful um thank you dr wenger for leading us to this main point um would we want to get into themes or issues in the church at the time or where do you want to go next uh
1: yes i'd like to do that um i just Mm -hmm. want to say a, a little bit more about paul's suffering and imprisonment um, as background to the mm-hmm. letter and that's that Paul sees himself very much as bearing the image of Jesus Christ and mm. so for Paul his imprisonment is not a defeat the way we might see it and so we, don't, we shouldn't see the letter as some sort of apology or uh, you know I'm sorry that my mission got cut short by, and it's a real shame and so on but rather Paul sees himself as honored to be able to suffer in the way Christ suffered and that through his suffering and through his imprisonment, he actually proclaims Jesus Christ more clearly, because Jesus is a suffering Messiah, uh, and. Uh, And that's why Paul can say that, uh, well, he says it in in Philippians, that his imprisonment actually uh, uh, provides a greater opportunity to proclaim the gospel. But in Ephesians, that uh, it is his honor uh, to be able to bear the marks of Christ in his body Mm -hmm. and to proclaim uh, the suffering Jesus to these people. So he says to them, don't lose heart because I'm suffering. This is actually for your good in the same way that Christ dies for your good.
0: And that's important, too, because if, if the person who's suffering reminds you that this is for good, it's going to change your perspective as well as you hear these words. And plus, he's, like you said, the kind of their pastor, so he understands that. Now, Pat, uh, Dr. Winger, we have about two minutes here um, for us to uh, go to our break. What do you want to highlight in these next two minutes?
1: Well, since you mentioned uh, Paul being their pastor, let's talk briefly about the, sort of the liturgical or, or churchly character of the letter. Um, if you read Ephesians, it, it reads very differently than Galatians or Romans, uh, some of the letters of Paul that are much more direct uh, and, and even uh, uh, more forceful. Ephesians has a more churchly uh, and florid sort of character to it. And I, I often ask people to think of the difference between the way your pastor might talk to you face-to-face, one-on-one, or even in a casual or social situation, and the way he talks to you when he's preaching or when he's leading a church service. Mm. And so when you get into the beginning of Ephesians, you have this elaborate, lengthy act of prayer and praise, uh, beginning in verse 3, which, uh, as we'll say later, is Um, the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. And Paul (laughs) heaps up language about the the richness and fullness of the grace of God. Well, to me, this makes sense. If you think about Paul as one who was used to leading these people in worship, to presiding at the Lord's Supper, to preaching to them, that he would adopt the kind of language that they were used to in that context— and that Paul realizes that when they get this letter from him, they're actually going to read it aloud in the worship service when everyone is gathered. So he's going to use the kind of language that they're used to. Uh, and that language echoes very much the kind of language that the early church, uh, and even in, in our hymnals, uh, used when the, the church was gathered together for worship.
0: And that's an important thing for us to consider as we go to our break. Is that this is a worshipful, um, feel the liturgical text that that uh, helps us not only in our daily walk but also in our worship life to show us the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous life. But right now we need to take a break. We are citing Ephesians chapter one with Dr. Thomas Winger, and we'll be right back. <music> On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org. I'm Pastor Phil Robbins. I'm senior pastor here at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in Sun City, West Arizona. We are in beautiful Arizona, and we ask you to come and find us when you're wintering down here. Visit our website at colchurch.com, colchurch.com. God's blessings in your travels. And welcome back. We are studying Ephesians with Dr. Thomas Winger the author of the Concordia commentary on Ephesians. He's literally written the book on the subject on the book itself, pointing us to Jesus this morning. One things we are looking at right now is the background. We've looked at many of the themes and the liturgical nature of this, pointing us to what it is to worship our Lord Jesus as the church did in the first century. The question now, uh, Pastor, uh, uh, Dr., excuse me, Pre- Pastor, Pre- Dr. President, uh, Winger is as we look and but to go into the text here, are there other themes or issues you want to address?
1: Yes, certainly, and uh, maybe two or three things. Um, in general, I would say there are two major uh, ideas that Paul is working with in this letter. One of them is the Uh, spiritual warfare that we talked about a little bit ago, and we can come back to that. Um, And the other is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the Church, or the unity of the Church. I think that the The issue of Jew and Gentile relationships in the church is probably the one that affects more of Paul's writings than any other uh, in in Galatians and Romans and so on. Uh, Do Gentiles need to be circumcised and observe the law of the Old Testament or not? And often um, uh, people from a Jewish background were causing troubles to the Gentile converts by imposing these laws upon them. And that's part of what's going on in Ephesians, uh, Mm. but uh, also uh, what I mentioned earlier, the sense perhaps the Ephesians might have had that they were responsible for Paul's imprisonment because he was imprisoned for preaching this law-free gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, And maybe that caused some significant strife within the Ephesian church between the Jew and the Gentile sides. Um, Luke notes in Acts Um, that it was actually a member of the Ephesian church who was with Paul when he got arrested, a fellow called Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. So Paul, writing back to them, is trying to downplay those kinds of divisions by saying that we are one, whether Jew or Greek, uh, and we are one in a number of different ways uh, in Chapters 1 and 2, we are one because we have shared with Christ in a number of experiences spiritually. We have died with him, risen with him, and even spiritually ascended to the highest heights with him through our baptism into him. Uh, later in chapter 2, he says that we are one because we both died with him on the cross. Uh, so Jesus mm-hmm. unites all humanity, Jew and Gentile. Um And so eventually, uh, Paul builds up to a great statement in chapter 4, where he writes, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. And so I think that his answer to the division between Jew and Gentile, however it might have come about, is to point them to what they have in common with each other. Uh, and so, you know, you were joking a little bit earlier about uh, Lutherans looking like Germans or uh, the, the, the way in which um, people from outside might view us as a closed club. And what we need to reemphasize always is that we're not children of God because we're German or because we're American or Canadian or whatever that is, but we're children of God because of the uh, the work that God has done for us in Christ and applied to us in baptism. And so you and I can uh, see each other as brothers in the faith, uh, not because of our ethnic background or our language background, but because we share a common baptism into Christ. And I think that's the way Paul is approaching the problem uh, in, in Ephesians. You're both sinners. You're both redeemed through Christ. You have a common baptism, uh, and that's where you want. That's how you need to look at at one another.
0: And if I could add to, uh, just say this, I think a lot of times we don't see Ephesians in that same light. I mean, we haven't focused on that in the same way because we think of Galatians doing that because they had the circumcision issue that, you know, they have the, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free that those, those verses point us to saying, yeah, that's the one where we're united in Christ and Ephesians, obviously we have chapter two, but this opens up a whole new realm too of this pastoral approach of saying we are one in Christ which obviously, as you said so well, points us to our modern day where we need to always emphasize our oneness because of Jesus. Dr. Wenger, I want to do one thing here. I want to to kind of hold you back a little bit with the themes and can can I give you two more minutes and get themes so we can dig into the text? Because I really want you to get this, but boy, we need to move forward. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I know you're going to be dealing with the rest of the letter with other people, but I Mm -hmm. just wanted to highlight how Uh, For instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and then he talks about we uh, Jews, and then he says the two of us together have been united into a spiritual temple. So the main thing Paul wants to get at here is that we are one body in Christ and that sort of the, the old way of doing things in the temple where the Gentiles were outside and and the Jews got to be inside has been erased in Christ and we are together as one worshiping community.
0: Wonderful. Um, Wonderful.
1: So yeah and, and we don't need to spend any more time I think on on the um the spiritual warfare side of it. You'll get into that as well. But mm-hmm. um Paul wants to remind these poor pagan people who felt a daily sense of fear and oppression that around every corner there was some demon who was going to get them. He wanted to tell them that you are above all that because in Christ you have been elevated to the highest heaven far above all of these demonic authorities Um, and i think today we don't Mm -hmm. always see the great benefit of that spiritual victory that christ has given us because we don't tend to see the reality of uh, of demons in our lives but but they are still there they are still attacking us and we need to turn to that uh, power that is ours in christ
0: well, that's a great segue, I think, Dr. Winger, of, of us looking to Jesus once again, knowing he is has all authority over evil, death, and obviously the devil. Can we Let's get into the text. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, open up your Bibles. Reminder that we are in uh, English Standard Version as we read this. The greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At first look here, Dr. Winger, it looks like just a normal greeting. A lot of times we kind of skip over it. But you in your, in your commentary and also what you sent me some notes, we shouldn't just so quickly just gloss over this greeting. We should dig in a little bit. What, what would you like to focus on?
1: Well, yeah, in some ways, it's just like the other greetings in his 13 letters, but it's what's different in each one that ought to catch our eye. And uh, here, I would focus on the word um, saints or holy ones. Uh, Paul uh, chooses that word deliberately, and I think what he's doing is he's hinting at the message that he wants to bring them. Um, Holiness Uh, is a status that we have before God because of the cleansing work of Christ um, through uh, the means of grace. And so I think already here, Paul is trying to say to them, look, don't focus on the fact that you're a Jew, you're a Greek, um, you speak one language, they speak a, a different language, but focus on who you are in Christ Jesus And that is, you are holy, you belong uh, to God. And then Paul will unpack that through the rest of the letter. But I always like to say, whenever you see the word saint, you should think holy ones, and you should think holy baptism. This is who I am because God has cleansed me.
0: Oh, that's very really good. And, and with that, what's the connection with and are faithful in Christ Jesus? Because he adds that. He could just say saints who are in Ephesus, but he adds the faithful in Christ Jesus part. How would you unpack that?
1: Yeah, I think the two go together. It's um, they are holy and faithful people. And uh, the uh, Uh, and and that they are located in Jesus Christ. And it's kind of interesting there how he kind of parallels in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus, um, Mm -hmm. as if to say to people that, you know, what really matters is not uh, where you are located physically, but where you're located spiritually. See one another as those who have faith in Christ, who've been made holy, but who actually live in Christ. And one thing that we'll notice in the, the verses that follow is the number of times Paul says over and over again, in him, in him, mm. as if mm. he wants to avert their eyes away from the physical realm towards the, uh, the, the spiritual location that they have. Uh, just as in chapter 2, he will tell them, you're actually in heaven. It doesn't look like it, but that's where you are
0: that that is fascinating um thank you for that, that that emphasis and also i was reading something in luther's lectures on galatians and he talks about the importance of grace to you and peace from god our father speaking about how um, these two words embrace all of Christianity. Grace, forgives sins, and peace stills the conscience. And he writes about those words, because we'll say that before a sermon often. And once again, grace and peace and mercy be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we skip over those. Do you have any other thoughts on the grace and peace aspect that he writes? Yeah, and
1: Luther's commentary there is quite marvelous on these these verses. I mean, the sort of... Um, Boring answer, but I always begin there, is that Paul (laughs) combines a Greek and a Jewish greeting, which is kind of interesting again, because what a Greek would do is he would say kairain, which means greetings, but it's related to the Greek word for grace, charis. And then what a Jew would say is shalom, or peace, which uh, in Greek then is arene. And Paul puts the two together and says um, grace and peace and this becomes his sort of um, signature greeting to people but yeah as Luther is saying it really encapsulates the wholeness of the Christian faith because grace is that undeserved favor of God that he's shown to us in Jesus Christ and peace is the result that we have That is Mm. that we have received uh, reconciliation with God, and that our lives have been made whole um, again,
0: and that gives us a clear conscience before God. Which is, uh, you know, I hear uh, Dr. Kleinig talks a lot about that, and others, because um, we our our relationship with God sometimes, a lot of times, gets seared, and that peace that it surpasses all understanding. And I'll say this, Dr. Winger, if that was your boring answer, I'm pretty excited about the boring answer. I would be excited to hear about the exciting answer that you have. But we'll (laughs) go go from there another time. Let's get into verses three. And it's hard to break this up. As you said, it's almost like a huge run-on sentence that you would say a creed or something in worship. But I'll attempt to do it just for the sake of trying to go verse by verse. So I'm going to start by going... Um, verses 3-6, through six, and if you want to give us background for all the verses 3-14 through 14, after we read this. We'll continue on, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So these verses, 3 through 14, are known as, uh, I guess you say it, a blessed be. Um, also, another word, I don't want to say it incorrectly. So, what is he doing in these verses and what do you call it?
1: Well, I call it a berakah. And berakah is just a um, uh, the, the Hebrew word for a particular kind of liturgical text, a prayer or an act of praise. And um, we see them all over the place in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament as well. These are prayers or canticles of praise that begin, blessed be God. Uh, and in Hebrew, that's Baruch or barakah. Uh hmm. And... I think that there is a particular um, reason why people in the Bible pray or praise God in this way. Uh, If you look at all of these prayers that begin blessed, in almost every instance they've experienced some remarkable um, divine act. Uh, So God has redeemed his people out of Egypt, he's brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. Uh, or some miracle has happened, and they burst forth in spontaneous praise. Um, Hmm. In the New Testament, uh, people will be familiar with the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah, which begins the same way when Zechariah is told that uh, his uh, wife is going to give birth to John the Baptist. So this remarkable thing has happened, and he praises God. Uh, So... I would say in my worship classes that true praise is not simply directed to who God is, but it focuses on what God has done. So these acts of praise, they always continue with something that begins with the word who. So here we have, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, he's done mm. something. And the whole first chapter focuses on all the work uh, that this God has uh, done. Um, now, there's uh, there's a couple of other letters of Paul that start this way. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians does, and then also 1 Peter. Um, and so it's a common uh, Jewish-Christian way of praying. And uh, people who are familiar with the Lutheran liturgy, at least in our hymnals, may realize that we have prayers that begin this way in our liturgy as well, particularly right before the Lord's Supper. Um, so it reminds me again that Paul is speaking in a very worshipful way with these people that he was used to um, uh, praying and worshiping with.
0: And so the main—sorry, go ahead. No, finish. Go ahead. I was going to say that when you look at these verses now, that opens up a perspective to this because it speaks so much of what he has done. It doesn't say, well, this is who he is in some kind of abstract sense. Um, but because Paul has experienced this divine act, e- exceptional divine acts upon him, he's going into everything that he's, that, that, that he has done to the Ephesians and done to him. Uh, that, that's something uh, because we we read these verses and we try to get all theological and trying to figure out what when the questions pop up in our minds. What is he saying? Um, as opposed to focusing on what he's done and keeping our eyes focused on that. That is very helpful because these verses can bring so many questions and controversies. As opposed to looking at simply, okay, we don't know that, but we do know what he's done. And uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, and and so what happens then is that in focusing on what God has done, um, praise and proclamation mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, blend into each other. Um, so th- it's not like, well, we can praise God or we can preach the gospel, but actually both things happen at the same time. Oh, so yeah. as, as Paul launches into this praise of God, he is already proclaiming um, uh, the gospel. Wow. Um, Now, in that first verse that you read, verse 3, the ESV translates um, the blessing there as spiritual blessing. And I think it's always worthwhile when you see the word spiritual to see if you could put a capital S on it and see if Mm. he might actually be talking specifically about the Holy Spirit. And if you do that in this verse, you end up with the Trinitarian Introduction. So it's blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing of the Holy Spirit. Um, And again, that reminds us how uh, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has uh, uh, blessings and gifts for us that are the unique uh, uh, work of each of the three persons. And as we go Mm -hmm. through verses three and following, we'll see that Paul is attributing to God, um, saving deeds according to each of the three persons. And what what you had read uh, begins with the work of the Father, that it was the work of the Father to to choose us for himself before the foundation of the world, predestining us to be adopted as his sons through Christ. And once Paul has said that, he then praises God for it. Verse 6, to the praise of his gracious glory, which he's shown to us uh, in the beloved. And many people reading Ephesians uh, uh, get kind of focused on the predestination aspect of it. But Paul doesn't stop there. Uh, He begins by saying, yes, God has planned all of this before the foundation of the world. But he's going to move on very quickly into how Christ uh, uh, carries it out and how the Holy Spirit delivers the benefits to us. Uh, So I wanted to emphasize that sort of Trinitarian pattern that looks very much like the Creed uh, in these first um, 14 verses or so of the letter.
0: And that is really helpful because uh, when you see it from a Trinitarian perspective, you said it's not only a praise, but it's a proclamation. And also for us, when we talk about faith, we can talk very clearly. These verses are perfect, and I encourage our listeners, verses 3 through 14, for us to, to clarify what we believe and teach and confess, so that when people do bring up questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian? These might be great verses for us to keep in our minds so that we're able to say, adopted, chosen, predestined, redeemed. I mean, just words that you can speak to people about. I never thought of this as an evangelistic text as well. Very helpful as we look at this. Other thoughts you have as we look at these verses?
1: Well, and it's a reminder, too, that the Trinity is not some abstract doctrine that you just once a year you whip out on Holy Trinity Sunday and everybody's (laughs) bored as you read the Athanasian's (laughs) Creed or something like that. So true. And and nor is it true what people like, you know, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, uh, that the Trinity is some invention of the later Church. But what constantly astounds me is that on virtually every page of the New Testament, something Trinitarian will jump out at you. Um, so Paul is not content to talk about God as, as a generic God, um, but the, the, the true God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each one of the persons working in unity with each other, but each one of the persons has a unique gift to give to us in, in creation and redemption and sanctification.
0: So as we look at this, uh, Dr. Wenger, I want to finish reading through verse 10, and I realize that this really should go to verse 14. Part of our problem is time. We have about yep. five minutes left here, and I want you to dig in, um, uh, the, continue with the Trinitarian talk, but also you speak about how baptism fits into this as well. I want to get into that, and I want us to focus. So I'm going to read 7 through 10, and then we'll go from there. In him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of the will, of his will, excuse me, according to his purpose, which they set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." More language here about the divine acts that have happened. Blessed be the Lord. What is Paul um, putting us putting this all together? We've about five minutes left here.
1: Sure. Um, Well, as as I mentioned, uh, many people get hung up on the predestination aspect, but actually what Paul does here is he moves very quickly from that eternal plan of God into how God carries out that plan in Christ. And just like uh, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed that that we use regularly, here too Paul actually focuses much more on the work of the Son— That's sort of the beefy middle uh, of this uh, act of praise here, as it's the beefy middle of all our creeds. Mm. Um, So, yes, it's a great comfort to us to know that God has planned for us to become his children. Um, But where Paul wants to hurry on to is how God actually brings that about. He brings it about by the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm. And then he uses some language here which starts to hint at the baptismal talk that Paul will, will lay out more fully later. Um, and sometimes our English Bibles don't quite capture it. But there in verse 8, as you read from the uh, ESV, it said that he lavished upon us. Um, the Greek word there is poured out upon us. And I always get the feeling here that Paul is kind of smiling as he uses these words, where um, he's hinting at something. He wants our mind to start churning. Well, why did he say that he poured out the grace upon us uh, rather than he just showed it to us or he told us about? And I think it's because he wants us to understand that it was with the pouring out of the water of baptism that the blood of Jesus was applied uh, to us.
0: So it's kind of like if you're standing under a waterfall and the water just pours upon you, like there's no part of you that is not covered. That's what I hear when you're saying that, lavished or poured upon us. He uses that language almost to say, listen, there was no part that was not part of this. It was completely covering you. That's, That's the vision I had when I heard that. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Winger?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the words that Paul uses so much in Ephesians is, is fullness or richness. So nothing is ever done in in, in parts, nothing is uh, is ever half-hearted, but God always just pours and pours and pours. And yeah, uh it's it's not um, how much water do you need how much grace of God do you need but uh, God has given more than you could possibly ever measure and later on in chapter 4 he'll even use that word measure and say you know the measure of the grace is the measure of, of Christ Not it's not how much God thinks you can handle but how much uh, Christ can give to you uh, so you can never fathom it all um, <laughs> he gives us Um, a revelation of what he's doing Uh, he gives us wisdom through the spirit but we can spend our whole lives uh, trying to comprehend how great it is and we won't fully understand it until eternity
0: and that's why in verse 10 we have about a minute and a half uh, Dr. Winger, verse 10 he brought in a, a, a theme that we've seen and we'll see throughout the whole book when he says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. They're united in Christ. What is he saying when things on heaven and on earth? Like I said, about a minute left.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I think the simple answer is that we have been separated from God. Heaven has been separated from earth by the fall into sin. Uh, and that that rift needs to get reconciled uh, in Christ. Um, but digging even deeper than that, um, there's something more personal about it, that Christ himself is both God and man. So in Christ, God and men have already been brought back together. Christ um, uh, is a descendant of Adam and also a descendant of Abraham. So in him, both Jews and Gentiles have been brought together Um, Christ was the agent of creation in, in Genesis 1 and in John 1. We're told that everything was created through him. And Christ is also the agent of redemption. So Paul just, again, continues to direct our eyes away from ourselves and what we can do to achieve any kind of unity with each other or with God. And says, focus on what you are in Christ. And I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say Christ is in you, but he says you are in Christ throughout this letter. Mm, mm, Um, mm -hmm. So the important thing is not you've got Christ in you and I've got Christ in me, but rather you and I are both in Christ. And if we're both in Christ, then we're in the same place uh, with
0: each other. And that's where we're going to have to end it here, Dr. Winger, because it is all things are brought together in Christ, now here on earth and also in heaven that is yet to come. Um, Dr. Thomas Winger, president of Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary, St. Catharines, Ontario, starting us off on the right foot with Ephesians. Dr. Winger, thank you for being our guest. Well, I'm glad I
1: could get you off on the right foot, and God's blessings (laughs) on all the other speakers as you work through this wonderful letter.
0: Yeah, thank you, and God bless you. Saints of our Lord, you have been brought together in Christ. As Dr. Winger said, it is Christ that is the beefy middle in all that we have. You are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, and redeemed because our Lord has poured this grace upon you. I'm your host, Brady and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.